0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Again, we thank you for the brilliant sunshine and the warm temperatures. We thank you that you brought us out of the winter months, both physically and uh, in a a lot of different people's lives, spiritually, emotionally, a a time of darkness for a lot of people. Lord, you are a God who never leaves us, you are the God who never forsakes us, never abandons us. You lead us through every season in this life. And Lord, we thank you that you are with us every step of the way. We know we, we never have to fear being alone from you. Are you not being with us? You not guiding us, you not showing us what to do, you not giving us the courage we need to face every situation. We thank you that you are the living God. You are the true God. You are the God of power and strength. So, Lord, we come before you, we come before your word to hear what you have for us this morning. We pray that you would bury these seeds of truth within us, that they may bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've all heard of eating competitions and the lengths that people go to train for such contests. The most famous one is the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest held every year on the 4th of July on Coney Island. The current record for, it, for that contest is 76 hot dogs eaten in 10 minutes by Joey Jaws Chestnut, set in 2021. But here are some lesser known and perhaps worse world records held for eating contests. Yasuki Yamaguchi currently holds the record set in 2013 for the fastest time to eat a whole raw onion at 29.56 seconds. Similarly, Patrick Bertoletti currently holds the record he set in 2012 for the most cloves of garlic eaten in one minute at 36 cloves. I don't know how you do. it. First of all, I don't even know how he even did that. And secondly, I don't want to be anywhere near that guy after he was done. Daniel Gorsk currently holds the world record for the most Big Macs eaten in a lifetime, clocking in at 32,672 Big Macs eaten as of December 31st, 2021. Now that takes fast food eating to a whole new level. The world record time for chugging a 7-Eleven Slurpee is nine seconds. Whoever did that had to have the worst case of brain freeze that's ever happened. And lastly, the world record for the largest amount of bacon ever consumed in five minutes is 182 slices. Now that one doesn't sound all that bad to me, right? As impressive and mind-boggling as these records are, I don't think anyone can even imagine eating in one sitting the amount of food that Jesus made out of a made appear out of nowhere. What does this tell us about the heart of God? And what does this tell us about how much we can trust Him for our daily needs? So, we are in John chapter 6 today. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 6. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, Please also turn to John chapter 6 or look this up on your favorite Bible app. John chapter 6, we're going to be in the first few verses here, verses 1 through 4. And we read this. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. All right, so let's unpack the setting uh, for us a little bit. Uh, John tells us that this happens after these things, is what he says. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was immediately after. All that this is, is a transitionary sentence, and all that it means is that in in John's gospel, this comes consecutively next from what he last wrote. Last week, we wrapped up Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees, and Jesus' evidences for his deity and authority to judge not only their souls, but the souls of everyone who has ever existed. Now another important piece of knowledge to have with uh, our passage this morning. When did that healing of the man who hadn't been able to walk for 40 years and then the subsequent conversation Jesus had with the Pharisees that we just wrapped up last week take place? When did that take place? The beginning of chapter 5 says that Jesus was in Jerusalem when he visited the pool of Bethesda for a feast. When you line everything up, This was most likely the Feast of Passover in Jesus' second year of ministry. Now look at verse 4 with me again. What do we read? Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was near. So what time frame are we looking at again for this miracle taking place in John chapter 6? Right around Passover again. So what does that tell us? That an entire year has taken place between what we wrapped up last week and what we're jumping into today. What happened over the course of that year? Do we just have no clue? No, for that, we can go to the what the other three Gospels tell us. So what all happens in between the end of John 5 and the beginning of John 6? According to one biblical scholar, Jesus officially calls the specific 12 disciples to follow him full time. Jesus gives the entire Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus heals the centurion's servant and the son of the widow of Nain. Jesus gives 11 parables, including the farmer who sowed a bunch of different seeds on different types of soil, the mustard seed, the yeast... The wheat and the tares, the pearl of great price, and the net that caught all kinds of sea creatures. All the parables which we went through during our outdoor services on the ranch house property during the New Jersey COVID shutdown, and then we moved back into the social distance sanctuary. Jesus calming the storm with his voice. Jesus healing a bunch more people, including the woman with the bleeding disorder. Jairus' daughter from the dead. A demon-possessed man and blind and mute people. Jesus sent out the 12 disciples out to preach in his name, and the execution of John the Baptist in prison takes place. All of that happens over the course of that year in between John 5 and John 6. After the twelve disciples return from their preaching travels in John 5, 1, Jesus takes those twelve, or I'm sorry, 6, 1, Jesus takes those twelve and retires across the Sea of Galilee for some quiet and physical rest, at least that was the goal. Luke 9.10 gives us a bit more detail of where this was. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all they had done. And taking them with him, he withdrew privately to a city called uh, Bethsaida. So again, here's my shameless plug for sitting up more towards the front. You can actually see this. (laughs) Here we are. We have Capernaum here. This is the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum and Bethsaida. uh, also on the edge of the sea, but you technically cross the northern edge to get there. For the whole second year of Jesus' ministry, in between John chapter 5 and John 6, Jesus' main region of ministry was Galilee as a whole. This purple section here. That whole year took place mostly in Galilee. He pretty much stayed there and didn't really do anything in Judea for that whole year. And during that whole year of ministry in Galilee, Jesus' main base was Capernaum. Again, right right over here on the northern tip. Why? Well, part of the reason may have been because four of Jesus' closest disciples... Peter, Andrew, James, and the writer of this gospel, John, had been living there for a while before entering full-time discipleship of Jesus. Whichever the reason was, Jesus had used Capernaum as his home base during that year. But now, as we're heading into Jesus' third year of ministry, marked by the third recorded Passover of his ministry, Jesus leaves the crowds that were amassing in Capernaum, as John says, crossed the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and as Luke specifies, lands in Bethsaida. Jesus went there with just the twelve to get some peace and quiet. But what ends up happening instead? Well, John says in verse 2 that a large crowd followed him to Bethsaida. So much for peace and quiet, right? But instead of being annoyed with the crowd or frustrated with them, Luke tells us that he welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God and healed those who were sick. Following that, uh, John tells us that Jesus excused himself, took the twelve with him, and went up on the mountainside that was on the coast there. As noted by one biblical scholar, this miracle that we're talking about this morning is the only one found in all four Gospels. The only miracle found in all four Gospels. That fact alone attests to the significance of what is about to take place. In fact, what this is, is this, this isn't just some other miracle that Jesus added to his resume. This is a turning point in Jesus's ministry and we'll see why as we get towards the end of this message what happens next verses 5 through 6 we read therefore Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him said to Philip where are we to buy bread so that these may eat this he was saying to test him for he himself knew what he was intending to do in connection with Luke's account of this event, Jesus probably retired up on the hillside with the 12 as the working day was drawing to a close, probably around 5 or 6 p.m. in our understanding of time. And he looks up and he sees that that crowd isn't going anywhere. In fact, as Luke records it, the 12 notice the same thing and come up to Jesus and say, Ah, uh, Jesus? This crowd isn't going anywhere. You need to send them away to go into the surrounding villages and towns because we're in the middle of nowhere. And if they stay here, they're not going to have anything to eat for dinner or anywhere to stay for the night. Do you see the spiritual significance of the issue going on here? The disciples are just relaying to Jesus What, in their minds anyway, should have just been common sense for the crowd of people. As the people in the crowd noticed the position of the sun, they should have realized that they needed to figure out what they were going to do for the end of the day. So why weren't they? Why were they not insisting on leaving? Or uh, insisting on not leaving? Because even though it was a misplaced hope, to this crowd, Jesus was the only hope they had at that point. The words that he taught them about the kingdom of God and the healings he was performing were the only hope they had to cling to. No one was going to leave the presence of that hope and peace. It's the same feeling we have when we first come to God in repentance of our sin and acceptance of Jesus' death and resurrection, having paid for our sinfulness on our behalf, restoring us to God and opening up a personal relationship with Him for the very first time. That freedom... hope of eternity that peace of knowing that no matter what happens to us in life from that moment forward that we have God Almighty mover of mountains as our Father the Holy Spirit starting to break chains in our lives and redeeming our pasts all of that that's what the crowd is sort of experiencing at this point who would want to leave that behind They didn't know what they were going to do, but they knew one thing, that they were not going to leave this source of hope that they were experiencing for the first time. And on Jesus' part, we can see the heart of God here. We can see the heart of God here. God is not going to send away anyone who is truly searching for hope and searching for it in him. It doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your life situation is or how hopeless your life situation is. If you come to God in humility and repentance, truly seeking His salvation, His truth, His hope through Jesus, He will always adopt you into His family. And then because His love knows no bounds, He will start transforming who you were when He found you and making you more and more like Jesus. John records that Jesus posed a question to one of the twelve, Philip, specifically. Where are we going to buy bread for everyone here? Now why does John record Philip Being the one Jesus poses this question to when the other three Gospels don't specifically uh, point to which one of the twelve Jesus poses this to. Have you ever wondered that when you read through this or maybe you've heard this uh, Bible story before? Why does Jesus ask Philip specifically? There had to be a reason. Why did John record it that way? John has already introduced Philip to us. Way back to when Jesus initially called him to follow him. A couple of years ago at this point, back in John chapter 1, Philip was Jesus' very first missionary, immediately putting his faith in Jesus, and then going and finding his friend Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, and telling him that he had found the Messiah. Where does John say Philip is from? Bethsaida. Where are they now? Bethsaida so Philip was from the nearest town and he would have known the resources for where one could buy bread in the immediate vicinity but that's not the that's not the main reason why at the same time we read that Jesus already knew where he was going to get the food to feed all these people and John says that Jesus was testing Philip's faith here's why Philip already had a strong faith. He had already felt so confident that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah that he had gone out on a limb to say as much to his friend who we gather is a, it was a pretty antagonistic and critical person. So Philip had to have a pretty strong initial faith in Jesus to even do that back in John chapter 1. But God is always in the business Of growing and stretching our faith. He's never content to leave us where He finds us, allowing us to continue on in the level of faith we first had. And so Jesus knows that Philip already has a strong faith in him and uses that as a springboard to stretch and grow that faith even more. God never tests us according to His Word to tempt us to sin, but he will test us to grow our faith. In fact, most of our Christian lives is God testing our faith in order to stretch it beyond the the limit it currently is into a whole new level of growth. That's exactly what Jesus is doing with Philip here. uh, Philip answers in a very human way. And in the way Jesus expected. Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. For everyone to receive a little. According to biblical scholarship, one denarius was worth the payment for one day's worth of work. It was enough to buy food for your family for that one day. So 200 denarii was worth roughly eight months worth of wages. So let's get a better idea of what that would be worth today to understand what Philip is getting at here. The current minimum wage for New Jersey is $13 an hour. One day's worth of work is roughly eight hours per day. That comes out to $104 per day of work, or with a six-day work week, $624 a week. Let's consider that there are roughly four weeks per month, so eight months' worth of wages today would be close to $20,000 today. In other words, Philip takes one look at the, cl- at the crowd and declares in exasperation, even if we had $20,000, which we don't, even that wouldn't be enough to feed this entire crowd, even if we just gave each person just one bite of bread. And even if we had $20,000, there isn't anywhere near enough bread in Beth- Bethsaida to buy the amount necessary. Knowing the currency translation today, we can sense the desperation, we can feel it. We can feel the desperation in Philip's declaration, almost to the point of, Jesus, what are you, nuts? I don't know how you can even be thinking about this. Meanwhile, according to one biblical scholar, another one of Jesus' 12 disciples, Andrew, originally one of John the Baptist's disciples from John chapter 1, went and tried to see what they had to work with. Mark 6.38 tells us that Jesus told the disciples to go out into the crowd and see what food there already was. We can surmise that that happened. And while some of the disciples went to go see, that's when Jesus posed Philip his question. So right after that, Andrew returns with this result. Out of the entire crowd, this is all that existed in that entire crowd. Verse 9. There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Whereas Jesus posed a question meant to describe the hopelessness of the situation from a financial standpoint to Philip, the task to go determine the earthly resources already there was meant to describe a similar form of hopelessness. No amount of money... And no amount of other kinds of resources was anywhere near enough to do what Jesus wanted to do from a human standpoint. Keep that in mind. Jesus knew exactly how he was going to respond. He didn't respond with similar desperation or exasperation. He didn't respond with panic. He didn't even respond with worry. How does Jesus respond? Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus simply told the crowd, who at this point may have even started to stir with worry about what they were going to do. He says, sit down. Stop all of the worry, and sit down. In other words, stop trying to figure it out. Stop worrying about it. Just sit down and trust me. Just sit down and trust me. Here's where we're also told how many people were there in the crowd. But notice what John only records here, the number of men who were there. Okay. Did the crowd only consist of men? I am 100% sure, not at all. Most certainly not. Surely there were women and children in in that crowd as well. So really, according to biblical scholarship, there were most likely at least Double that with the inclusion of women. And if we include all the children present as well, we could double the figure of both men and women. This wasn't only a crowd of 5,000. We're talking more of a crowd of about 20,000 people here. One biblical scholar even goes so far as to reveal that this figure of 20,000 rivaled the seating capacities of a theater in a major city in the Roman world like the major city of Ephesus the Ephesian theater we're talking about a huge amount of people here no wonder the disciples saw this for truly what it was an impossible situation to feed this gigantic crowd of people and yet what does Jesus do? He takes the five loaves of bread and the two small fish, the lunch only originally big enough for a 12-year-old boy and his lunch, and he does what with it? Verses 11 through the beginning part of verse 12. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, and then we'll, we'll get into that. Notice a couple of important observations about what happened here. What did Jesus first do? He took the food and he thanked God the Father for that food in an impossible situation and what was about to happen. The provision of our needs starts with our recognition that they only come from God in the first place and thank him for what he provides next was all that each person received enough for each of them to take a bite no it was enough bread and fish for everyone to eat their fill And not only that, but there were leftovers. The second part of of, uh, uh, verse 12. Gather up the leftover fragments so nothing will be lost. Verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Yes, the number of baskets, 12, was symbolic that Jesus was proving he was the Messiah of all 12 of the tribes of Israel, but there was more to it. Jesus was showing just how above and beyond he was capable of providing for humanity's needs. He didn't provide just enough to cover the need, which he'll do sometimes, but he provided abundantly more than what was hoped for or dreamed of. The only way that any of what we just read could have happened at all was none other than a providential miracle performed none other than God himself. God in the flesh took an absolutely impossible situation from a human standpoint and through unspeakable provision, miraculously and more abundantly made it possible. The crowd was so overwhelmed with how miraculous and out of nowhere this was that they declared in verse 14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. This is somewhat in contrast with the conversation Jesus had, John had ended John chapter 5 with between Jesus and the Pharisees, if you remember that conversation. In that conversation, the Pharisees flat out refused to see what Moses had written in connection with the coming Messiah, who would be a prophet like Moses, knowing God face to face. But on the other hand, the crowd recognized what the Pharisees refused to see. That Jesus indeed was that prophesied prophet like Moses. They knew about Moses' prophecy and they saw that that had to be Jesus. However, they still misunderstood what the purpose of Jesus as that prophesied Messiah was supposed to be. We'll get more into this next week. But verse 15 reveals the crowd's messianic fervor, what that was driving them to want to do with Jesus. They wanted to make Jesus the physical and earthly king of Israel right then and there in order to kick out the Romans and reclaim the Jewish kingdom. We'll get more into that misunderstanding and what happens after that next week. Like I said towards the beginning, this event was a turning point in Jesus' earthly ministry. For the whole previous year, leading up to this third Passover, as biblical scholarship points out, that was a year of rising popularity for Jesus and his disciples, brought about by Jesus' preaching and miraculous healings of all kinds of physical sicknesses and health conditions. But here... Around the third Passover, at the beginning of Jesus' third year of ministry, the crowd's misunderstanding of Jesus' purpose on earth that time around marked the beginning of this third and last year of opposition for Jesus. Second year was a year of popularity. This third year is opposition for Jesus What starts out as misunderstanding grows and multiplies into frustration that Jesus is not doing what the Messiah was supposed to be doing in their minds, which erupts eventually into a crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him, at the time of the fourth and last Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry. You may be facing, have recently faced, or will be facing an absolutely impossible situation from a human standpoint. It may be a broken relationship. It may be a loved one that's gone down a wrong path. It may be marriage troubles. It may be the loss of a job or a job that pays too little. It may be staring down foreclosure on a house or not making this month's rent. It may be an overwhelmingly strong temptation or addiction that you just can't overcome and you keep falling back into. It may be an intense spiritual attack. It may be an insurmountable depression, anxiety, or other mental or psychological issue. It may be an incurable disease or inoperable health condition. It may be excruciating physical or emotional pain. It may be debilitating fear or worry about life or a specific situation, or similar to this morning's passage, you may not have enough food to eat. Look at the account we just covered. We were talking about upwards of 20,000 people needing to be fed, with very little money, nowhere near enough bread in the entire vicinity, and only a boy's lunch as the only resource. And there was no way this was going to happen from a human standpoint. And that's all the disciples or anyone else could see, think, or think was possible. But yet, see, Jesus had a plan the entire time. He already had a plan. Even though no one could see it, even though no one could even conceive of it being a plan, but that did not stop the truth of what Jesus was capable of and what that plan was. And God has a plan for what you're going through, even and especially if you can't see it or understand it. Jesus knew what he was going to do to come through in this impossible situation, and God knows what he's going to do in your life according to his plan. So if God already knows what he's going to do in our lives according to his plan for his glory, no matter if it makes sense to us or not, then what are we to do? First of all, in every... In whatever impossible situation we're facing, the one thing that God does not want us to do is to worry about it or to fear it. The one thing God does not want us to do is to worry about it or to fear it. The Apostle Paul tells us, don't worry about anything. That covers everything, doesn't it? Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. It's very simple. Notice the centrality of gratitude and thankfulness to us presenting our needs and what we're worrying about to God. Jesus thanked God the Father for the little amount of food that was donated at that point before he miraculously started divvying it up to 20,000 people. We present our needs to God, but at the same time we reflect in gratitude for how God has provided for us and come through for us all the time up to that. It directs our minds and our hearts to what they should be focused on. Not on the impossible situation, not on the giants that we sang about a few minutes ago, but on the God that can make anything possible. this heart and mind focus is what Jesus refers to in his famous Sermon on the mount. We, pre- we present our needs to God in faith. Knowing what we're shown in this morning's passage, that God already knows what he's doing, and God already knows what he's going to do in our lives. As such, these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What are we going to drink? But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. So what are we to do? Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Very simple. We present our needs to God in prayer and thankfulness for everything he's already given to us and done for us. And then what, you know what we have to do? We need to leave them there. We need to leave those concerns at the throne of God. We don't come busting back into the throne room right after we say amen, stealing back all those concerns and either trying to figure them out ourselves or spend night after night sleeplessly worrying about them. No, we present them to God and leave them there, knowing that he already knows, that he knows what he's going to do to answer those prayers, And he knows how it's all going to fit together with his plan. Meanwhile, we focus on what God wants us to be focused on. Seeking the truth of his kingdom. And the building of his kingdom in truth and love. Seeking how we can serve him best with our everyday lives. And seeking how we can live most in accordance with his word. Living righteously. We are freed to do that because as Jesus tested Philip and Andrew's faith in this morning's passage, we know that God uses every trial and every hardship in our lives as opportunities to stretch and grow our faith. Let me tell you something. There is nothing in our lives that God intends for our harm. Absolutely nothing. No quite the opposite. For as Paul says, we know that God causes everything, and I mean everything, to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. When we bring our needs and concerns before God and trust him with whatever he deems best for us, our faith growth and spiritual maturity We are given a supernatural peace that those who don't know Jesus simply cannot manufacture or ever experience for themselves. Right after Paul says to not worry about anything, but bring all of our needs and concerns to God in thankfulness, he says this is an immediate result. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. The world is marked by worry, fear, and trying to figure out the solutions to every problem themselves. They have to because they have nobody else to do it for them. Children of God are given the treasure of of being children of and serving the God who is abundantly more than capable of moving and creating a possibility out of an impossible situation who tells us not to worry and to trust him and who gives us the peace that exceeds anything we can understand straight from heaven to guard our hearts from failing and our minds from worrying in the power of Christ Jesus. So, Let's live in that treasure. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very famous passage about this very famous account. We thank you for all that it teaches us. It teaches us about the heart of you. It teaches us that you will never abandon us. You will always take somebody who is seeking after you, seeking after the truth that can only be found in you. And then when we come to you in humility and repentance, taking Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf as our only hope for reconciliation to you and eternity in heaven, we know that we are given a tremendous treasure. We are adopted into your family. You become our heavenly father. And from that point forward, we don't have to worry about anything. You will take care of everything. All we need to do is trust you. Lord, give us the strength to do just that. Free us from these different worries and fears and concerns that want to keep us chained up and held down. Free us from that. Focus our hearts and minds on the kingdom of God, knowing that you're going to take care of all these things. And when we present our needs and concerns to you, let us do so in thankfulness, remembering everything that you've been doing in our lives up to this point, and then leave them there knowing that you will work everything out according to your good and perfect plan. And then we know, Lord, you will guard our hearts and minds in the power of Christ Jesus. If there's anybody here who is struggling with a worry or fear, I pray that they would surrender that to you and be filled with that eternal peace. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we transition to coming before the Lord's table at this time.